Hi, this is Alex Gianni. I'm a psychologist who's been working with the Behavioural Insights team for most of the team's 10-year existence. And I'm here with Rory Gallagher, our Managing Director here in Sydney. We've created this podcast to shed some light on how we work and how different ideas can help other policymakers. In this episode, we're looking at the importance of stepping away from your desk, albeit in a COVID-safe way, going out to the front line, spending time with the people that you're trying to help, and exploring it for yourself. We've been continually evolving our approach for the last 10 years, and we've learned some hard lessons during that time. So we want to make sure that we help other policymakers take those learnings, but skip some of the battle scars. Today, we'll talk through some of the examples of the work that we've done on court fines, the gig economy, and in job centres. You'll also hear from our colleagues, partners and friends about work that they've done that has made a real difference to people's lives across the globe. So, to kick us off, Rory, when did you first realise the value of going out to the front line? One of the first activities that we undertook was a ride-along with the fines unit to go and collect fines with bailiffs. So that basically involved getting up at the crack of dawn, you know, 4am, putting on the stab vest, uh, and then going round to debtors' houses, so people that had outstanding court fines and trying to collect those fines. And that was a pretty eye-opening experience. It was very clear, very quickly, that most of these people did not realise that they had reached that point in the process. Some were aware they had outstanding court fines, some weren't. And in some of the fi- houses that we went into, it was pretty obvious that there was you know, a stack of um, fines and bills, etc., that were unopened on the floor, which told us a couple of things, which we uh, sort of further explored through, through interviews. The first was that yeah, most people didn't understand the communications that were written to them by the court service and that used lots of legalese and bureaucratic terms like distress warrant, um, when actually what that essentially means is that people would turn up, bailiffs would turn up and try and collect that, that money. Uh, and there was even a feeling amongst some bureaucrats that we shouldn't use very straightforward language, um, but that obviously only serves to, to compound the problem. And the second is that even if we improve those letters and communications, written communications, we still wouldn't get through to, to, to some and therefore we had to explore other communication channels like, like text messages. So a lot of what we do during that exploratory phase is, is to understand the different perspectives of the different players in the system. Most often that that is the frontline service delivery providers and the end users. Uh, and other times there will be a series of other players in that space that we need to understand as well. So putting yourself in the shoes of a user is usually a really good place to start. And that can take many forms. At its simplest, that might mean reading a communication or a letter and working out, you know, can you understand what it is asking you to do? It could also mean signing up for a service. You know, for example, I've tried to switch energy provider or switch bank accounts to understand the barriers that there are around those sorts of processes. Or it can be even more immersive. And, um, you know, I've done all sorts of things, including on Friday night, I was out delivering shifts and delivering foods by putting myself in the shoes of a food delivery worker for a project around the work health and safety risks of the gig economy. And I think you had quite a lot of uh, fun in doing that, but also some some insights, right? Yeah, I mean, these things are, they are enjoyable to really understand how these things play out in practice. They can be pretty stressful uh, as well. And I think, you know, as I probably hear in a second, um, 
in this particular case, I was becoming increasingly sort of frustrated and pressured as the shift went on, as we weren't picking up orders, you could sort of feel the frustration and the sort of pressure building so much so that when the first order came in, I was so desperate to, to, to secure it that I started manically trying to press my phone to secure the order, which meant it fell off the windscreen, fell into my lap and I started veering all over the room. Suffice to say we were fine. Um, but it was a good illustration of the pressure that these platforms build and put workers under, particularly from a time perspective. And we've actually got some audio, maybe not quite of the, uh, the veering off the road and the swerving, but um, definitely of you being in the car with, with our colleague, uh, Zoe Powell, which I think just gives, gives you an experience of um, how, how visceral I think some of these experiences can be. It's quite a good experience though, to have had a shift where you're back to back orders and then and have one where you're struggling to get any takers. How do you think those experiences differ so far? So I, I definitely, having done one shift, I am less stressed. I've moved through the emotions from guilt <laughs> through to sort of uncertainty, anxiety, a little bit of sadness. I've, I'm now moving through to the anger and frustration stage. <laughs> like, where, where are the orders? I'm trying to do some work. Auto match. Okay, get started. I'm just accepting it. Oh no. Okay, Rory's okay, phone has just fallen off oh, the screen. Crikey. Can you just hold that up a second? Accept the order. <laughs> Should I pull over? I'll have to pull over. You'll have to pull over. I think. Okay, I've got to watch that cyclist. Okay. All right. Do we manage to accept the order? Okay. I think so. I'm going to have to. There's a cyclist just coming up that inside lane, which I. Careful of. Okay, I can hear a, I can hear a, a beep. What are we? What's going on? So I'm not. Uh, it says drive to restaurant in Chatswood. Yeah, oh, that's miles away again. Okay, okay. So but let's. But it hasn't connected to your maps. So Why not? I don't know. I don't know. What? Well, I don't know. Just press something. Just press something. Yeah. Order think, is being prepared. Okay. I think you have to press that button. Sorry, I can't. Okay. Can you press? I need to find somewhere to pull over. First order, how, how long in? Yeah, nearly an hour in. Okay, so we're, we're back on. We're back on and we're seven minutes away, if, if the app has all worked correctly, from our first pickup an hour after the shift started. But better late than never, eh? Yep, yeah, and how, how are you feeling at the moment? Elated. Elated. Okay. Slightly okay. stressed all of a sudden. The stress levels have immediately picked up because I've got seven minutes to get there and I know there's a bit of traffic around and my phone keeps falling off the window. But other than that, things are going excellently. I'm going to run in and grab the... I've got to grab the... Um, I've got to grab the bag out of the back and then yep. I'll see you back in here in two. Okay. How you going? Good. There's a little bit of a faff getting the food, but all good in general. I didn't ask my order number or anything, but I presume it all just went through. Um, okay, now we need to navigate to the customer. 18 minutes! Uh-oh, I think I'm supposed to have been there in like five minutes. Okay, is that right? Oh dear. So the good news is, Hopefully that's not someone's dinner going cold in the back. I'm pretty sure it smells like someone's dinner going cold in the back. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Oh, Zoe, what an emotional roller coaster. $23 for the whole shift so far, $23.50 for how long been doing? An hour, two and a quarter hours. That is so well below minimum wage. Yeah. Even excluding petrol costs. Even adjusting for inflation, I think I was making more when I was 14. Yeah, it's not a, it's not been a, it's not been a lucrative shift, has it? Let's, let's just be clear about that. So were there any specific uh, insights that you got from being in, in that process? Yeah, there, look, there were a couple. The first, as I, I mentioned, is really around the time pressure and the whole platforms are kind of designed to emphasize the sort of scarcity of orders and the scarcity of time in order for you to, to make that next delivery. There's often a slight underestimation of the time taken to get to the next destinations when you compare the sort of platforms timing to uh, Google or Apple Maps. Um, and it often doesn't take into account or provide information about where you can park your bike or your or your car, for example. So you constantly feel like you're chasing your tail. Uh, and there's also a lack of information. So when you don't get uh, an order, you begin to start questioning what in the algorithm, you know, you may have done was it you were slightly late to the shift, you were slow on the last shift. It become this sort of vicious sort of cycle that you're playing catch up. And the third is really just around COVID. You know, we're at a time uh, when the pandemic is, you know, is, is continues to, to, to rage on. And there's a real lack of information or prompts about when you're starting um, your shift to remember your mask, to remember to you know, sanitize your hands, to remember to keep your distance. So there was both a sort of lack of information really about sort of practical options and logistics about where to park, etc., and a lack of information about sort of COVID precautions as well. And I think you had it, you had it easy really, because you're in a car, right? Um, yeah, that's right. I mean, um, there's such an over-demand at the minute, partially probably because of the um, uh, the COVID impact on our economy. There's lots of demand to become a food delivery worker, a gig economy worker. And so when I signed up to become uh, you know, a delivery worker on my bicycle, there were literally no shifts or spaces available. And I actually could only find shifts uh, in another part of the city and by driving, uh, by driving a car rather than a bike. But thankfully, uh, actually, one of our, our colleagues, Saul, did manage to, to sign up as a as a cyclist, I'm not sure why they chose him over you. Um, Definitely nothing to do with my body mass index or fitness levels, I'm sure. That was not taken. <laughs> not as far as I know. But who knows what they're accessing on my phone. <laughs> well, we also have some audio of Saul uh, talking through the experience of being on a bike whilst uh, being a, a food delivery worker. So let's listen to that. So I'd been doing a lot of desk research in investigating the work health and safety risks of food delivery workers in Australia. and. Thought I had quite a good understanding of what it was like for them. What happened on the first shift was I got all dressed up and all my gear on and the, the um, was getting used to the bag and logged into the platform, got an order and immediately accepted it and found that I was about four streets away from collecting the food from the restaurant. And it gave me, I think, a three minute window to collect this. And wow. I'm a very experienced bicycle rider. And I knew that there's, you know, a series of traffic lights. It was going through King's Cross. I knew that that was a stretch to get there. But it was quite stressful, even for someone who had nothing to lose. So I was kind of riding around the streets at certain points, looking at the phone, which you probably shouldn't do. I did take risks. I think it's physically exhausting. So I think the first day I did two hours of cycling and the second day I did about five hours of cycling. And after five hours of cycling, it was, I was truly exhausted. And uh, another thing I think is that you're really exposed to the elements. So uh, one of the days that I worked, it was raining and very windy and that was 
not very pleasurable to ride around in. So, Rory, it sounds like you and Saul learned some uh, similar things, but also some quite different things through your fieldwork. Indeed. And I think that's the key The key point here is that when we're asked to make these recommendations about how to improve work health and safety, we could use all sorts of methods. You know, we were analysing some of the quant data that we have that shows how, you know, how much at risk uh, food delivery workers are in terms of abuse and, and injury. We can do things like look on social media channels and analyse the types of conversations that go on there. And we can interview uh, food delivery workers and food delivery platforms. But actually, even with all of that, I don't think we would have really understood what it felt like like some of those time pressures really understood what it took to sign up to find a shift uh, and what it feels like when you are you're racing against time unless we'd actually taken part in the service for itself so on its own it can't give you all of the data but i think when you round it out with a variety of tools it can give you a much more complete picture of what's going on and a much better sense of where the opportunities to make improvements are so rory in that gig economy work it was relatively easy to be the end user but that isn't always the case is it no, and a good, a good example of that is probably our work on domestic violence, where for obvious reasons, you, you're unlikely to either want to be in the position of being the offender or the victim, and you're not able to obviously observe that directly. So in those cases, we have to take a, an approach which really, again, looks at the system that we have to deal with those types of issues and thinks about how do you actually understand the interactions uh, between offenders, victims and service users. So we spend time sitting in courts, we spend time attending men's behaviour change programmes, sometimes sitting down and talking with victims and service providers and really understand what was going on from their perspective, what was driving the violence, what was driving the compliance and non-compliance. Uh, so was that quite uh, personally confronting to try and empathise with, with that position and, and be in that system? Yeah, I mean, and again, time's quite emotional. There were times where we would speak to victims or we would observe court interactions where the, the victim was, was clearly very, very visibly upset uh, and at the other end of the scale you know I've attended men's behavior change programs where offenders would talk quite explicitly and sometimes you know sometimes quite dismissively about some of the acts of of violence and so it can be quite confronting to hear those those stories um and and hard to sort of make sense of it but the bigger and you can sort of cast a net and the more experiences and perspective on that the better i think our understanding of the different drivers uh, can be and we've actually got uh, some audio of an interview with one of our colleagues, Ali Wong, talking through that process. What really struck me with my field work, spending time in courts, is that court is an incredibly confusing place. It's confusing if your first language is English and you have a master's degree. No one's there to help guide you through, okay, so your turn is going to be up next and then you know, you don't take a ticket like going to service New South Wales and get ushered through the process. You kind of have to know what's going on. Uh, you have to be there for a long time. You have to be able to understand a magistrate who's speaking very, very quickly. They don't really take the time because they've got so many matters to hear on a day. They don't have the time to really break it down for you. So you kind of, your matter's heard. They say, do you understand? Yes or no? Everybody says yes, because I don't think they feel like they can have it explained to them by the magistrate anyway. There could be a lot more that we're doing to assist victims and defendants through the process of going to court. Like it gave me a, a, a better understanding of, of what the process must be like for, for people having to deal with that. And victims as well must 
find it really difficult to go through that process. Um, so I think the field work was instrumental in getting me to really understand um, how difficult a process it is for everyone. Yeah, so Ali talked about the trip to Western New South Wales and out to Burke. And again, I can pretty vividly remember the sort of long drive out from Dubbo to the court and the various sort of small towns and courts along the way. Uh, and one thing that was very evident when we were out in these rural courts was this normalisation of violence, partly because of the way that the system is designed. So there are domestic violence court listing days where magistrates will travel out to these small towns. And that means that all of those listings are heard on one morning or, or one particular day. Um, but as Ali mentioned, it isn't sort of carefully managed in terms of there are specific appointment times etc everyone turns up at nine o'clock or nine thirty, and then you can wait all morning and sometimes all afternoon in order to have your hearing so you have these literal lines of people uh, around the court waiting to be heard and when you think about what that does in terms of reinforcing some of those negative social norms around uh, violence and its prevalence you can really see that played out in action and when we ask some of the offenders there you know how common is this they would have a distorted picture of how common these types of ADVOs were in the population or violence in a relationship, uh, partly because of the way that we designed those core system to concentrate uh, attendance and appointments at particular times. We've talked a little bit about how the end user feels in that system, but I think some of the insights from that piece of work did lead to a new program that we set up with uh, the Aboriginal Service Unit at the, the Department of Justice. Uh, how do you think that process went for them? Yeah, so we spotted quite early the opportunity to work with the Aboriginal Services Unit and Aboriginal court support workers who were often on the front line and recognised that many of their clients, many of the defendants and victims, didn't really understand the intricacies of the court system or what the ADVOs meant. And what that often did is it set them up to fail. So often when they left court that day, it wasn't exactly clear what exactly what they could and couldn't do where they could and couldn't go and so we devised with them a program called what's your plan which was really about making sure that when defendants and also victims leave the court process they understand exactly what it is they they can and can't do what exactly what that apprehended domestic violence order means and what what's an example of that something that they can and can't do so a fairly common part of an order might be that you can't drink alcohol and go home so if couples have stayed together There'll often be an order which means that the offender cannot go home if they've they've drunk alcohol. And often what that means at the end of the court service is people will just say, well, it's OK, I'll, I won't drink anymore. And they haven't actually thought through that actually within their community, you know, within their sort of daily life, there will be occasions when they have a drink. But they haven't thought through and planned what they will do in that occasion. So what often happens is they will end up breaching that order. And so in this case, we, we asked the Aboriginal court support workers to sit down to make a plan and to think through in detail well what will you do if you do have a drink well okay i will stay at uncle bob's house and i will set up an arrangement whereby i can text uncle bob to make sure i can stay there uh, if i do drink alcohol rather than go home and risk breaching the order hmm. and actually we've got some audio uh from edwina crawford who was the um the director of of the aboriginal services unit talking through how how it felt like on their perspective to work on this um on this project so Aboriginal people are disproportionately overrepresented in DV matters in New South Wales. And What's Your Plan allowed us to trial a new way of engaging and interacting with Aboriginal defendants with apprehended domestic violence orders. And it allowed us to have conversations with them to be really clear about 
what orders are in place, what they can and can't do, as well as having conversations with them about the things that are going to get, away, get in the way of their compliance and what they can do to plan to overcome those barriers. Our front, frontline staff are really the bridge between the community court users and our department. So working with them to tap into that expertise around what they have in terms of working with clients, what their knowledge and experiences are is really critical. Our policy work and our program work is really grounded in that. So our frontline are really critical to helping us develop approaches that are tailored to those particular environments that can be very high stress, uh, not only for the person, but the system is very big and clunky and hard to understand. So making sure that we do things that are informed by the front line are absolutely critical. I think what was really important in the co-design process was that behavioural insights came to us with an approach in the model and then my staff were simply able to look at it and go, that, that might work, that won't work, oh you're going to need more time in this part, less time in that, here's how we could present information in a more digestible way for Aboriginal people and using really what we you know Aboriginal people tend to communicate like and infuse that style into the approach. I think it would have been a lot more difficult had we come with a blank slate and we all tried to work together. I feel like we've done really well adapting uh, and infusing culture into existing approaches so they work for Aboriginal clients. And I think one of the my most favourite things about what you plan is We've been providing court support, you know, the Aboriginal client community support officer roles have been around now for 25 years. That program got started in 1995 and it was identified that Aboriginal court users need support to navigate the court system, understand the processes, if they're defendants, understand their conditions. So it's been around for a while. So we kind of thought that we had it down pat. And then along comes the Behavioural Insights Unit that showed us how we can have more impactful conversations in the very short period of time that we have with court users. So it completely helped us pivot and find ways to do what we do even better. Yeah, I think in my time, I've been around for 22 years now, it's kind of half my life I've spent in the New South Wales Public Service. And you can see over time, there's been a real shift in policies being developed at the top by people in glass offices in the middle of cities that then need to be implemented out on the ground in Western New South Wales or up North Coast. That is not happening as much anymore. There's a real uh, shift in, we need to have the frontline informing uh, the work that we do and the policies and programs we develop. There are a lot more practice communities in uh, government agencies right across New South Wales where they bring together policy makers, data and analytics teams, as well as frontline staff to test uh, new new ways of doing business because there's data that will tell you one story but then the front line is able to give you the human side. Yeah Edwina and the Aboriginal Services you know were absolutely fantastic to work with in this case they spotted the opportunity um, to apply these tools in the context and went about co-designing what this would actually look like in practice exactly what would the script look like how would we approach uh, defendants what would the script be to encourage them to have this conversation and then even adopted things like new technologies that weren't really used in the court system at the time so one that we weren't sure if it was going to work was to ask defendants to write their own text messages to themselves. So for example, they could decide to send them a text message on a Friday evening to encourage them not to drink, for example, or if they were feeling stressed or anxious to take five minutes and go and walk outside in order to calm down. Uh, and we were really pleasantly surprised by the ability of the systems to adapt to that, to set up these text messages and how 
positive and empowering it felt actually for defendants to be writing their own messages rather than always being on the receiving end of those messages from from government services. And do you think you would have uh, had the authority or the authenticity to be able to come up with these ideas had you not gone out there to, to understand the system in depth? No, um, definitely, definitely not. And even the fact that actually it was Aboriginal support workers who were using text messages of their own volition, it's just we hadn't really created a system to support that at that time was an opportunity that we, we spotted. Um, and again, it took lots of co-design sessions with those frontline workers in order to work out exactly how is this going to work? What are the risks around this? How do we mitigate that? Uh, and how do we track impact? So you think some of the some of the best ideas come from going out there and sort of having these co-design sessions with people? Yeah, the the best ideas really come from reading a book or reading a paper or even sitting alone in a room coming up with ideas. The best ideas come from conversations with the end users, with the frontline staff, often both and often through an iterative process. And the What's Your Plan program has evolved a lot over time. I think it's been a great example of a sort of test and learn mentality where the way that it was delivered, exactly the training that was set alongside it, evolved and adapted over time. And then the quality assurance Jeremy drove um, was really a key feature in helping to take that to scale across the state. Jeremy being uh, someone in Edwina's team. By getting out into the fields, you don't just see individuals sort of working in isolation. You also get to see how different actors in that system interact. Yeah, so I think this really became quite apparent when um, the two of us were out going to see some job centres, uh, which was actually quite a long time ago now. We learned so much more than the three weeks of reading policy papers. So one of the things that really sticks out to me was that as soon as we walked into the job centre in Loughton in Essex, we saw a bunch of people just waiting outside. And we thought, well, that's a bit a bit odd. Um, so we spoke to some of the job centre staff. And whilst many of the job centre staff there were very supportive, frankly, quite a few were, were disengaged, some of the job centre staff had a really strong opinion on what these uh, job seekers were doing. And some of them used quite emotive language saying, you know, these people, you know, they're not doing anything, they're waiting out there and they are scrawling these lies into some booklets. So we wanted to understand, you know, first of all, what are these booklets? And these are the booklets that were developed by the government to essentially um, get job seekers to write down what they had been doing to find work. And when we spoke to the job seekers themselves, they had a very, very different opinion. So from the job seeker perspective, they said, these, these forms that we're being asked to fill in, they're not adding any value to us. I might be going out and trying to look for jobs, create a better CV, read the newspapers, to see what vacancies there are available. But filling in this form doesn't actually get me closer to my goal of finding work. This is purely a bureaucratic exercise. And you could see that actually by taking these different viewpoints, you've got a much broader sense of the system and you've got to understand how different parts of a bureaucracy can actually create a more adversarial conversation than uh, I'd imagine the, the policymakers initially thought they would be creating. 
Yeah, look, and talking of sort of bureaucratic layers incrementally growing over the time, most astounding bits of observation was just watching what happens when someone comes and signs on for employment benefits from the first time. And you could see how different forms and bits of information had slowly built up over time so that in that first meeting, people literally had to sign nine different bits of paper, nine different forms in order to access their benefits. And again, you can see that wasn't the sort of intentional design of the system. It was just the way that it sort of had built up over time. The problem was that that meant that when job seekers left the employment centre for the first time, they hadn't even really had a conversation about looking for work or what they were searching for or how to search for a job. They'd spent most of that time providing their details, often the same details multiple times for multiple different purposes. Uh, indeed, there was even one sort of part of the booklet which they signed, which their other forms and signatures sort of merely went inside. It was quite demotivating and, and from a behavioural perspective, they primed these job seekers to think about these centres as places of bureaucracy, of form filling, of applying for benefits rather than looking for work. And the other really clear examples where sort of policy decisions, bureaucratic decisions are sort of made with good intent, but actually have a quite different outcome in practice. So a good example of that was that for understandable reasons, uh, the government wants to set minimum compliance standards. So as you mentioned, people have to search for jobs, they have to undertake these job search activities. And the minimum amount that people had to do was three job searches over a fortnight or, or a week in order to receive their benefits. And, you know, that's a, you have to draw that line somewhere. But what was very powerful, if you sat down and, and sat in these job seeker interviews for, for hours at a time, you know, interview after interview, was how much that arbitrary sort of uh, boundary impacted on behaviour in quite a sort of a strong way and what something we would call sort of through the process of anchoring, that these job seekers were heavily anchored on this minimum level of compliance. So you would sit in these interviews, time after time people would come in and say, here's my three job searches. It was very clear when you speak to job seekers or the advisors that if you're doing three or four job searches a week, it is very unlikely you're going to find work quickly. So actually we were anchoring people on the wrong type of outcome, the wrong part of the process. And so we switched that to think about just not about this minimum of compliance, it's about sitting down and planning prospectively what sort of stretch goal you can have to, in order to look for work and what are the sort of implementation intention steps that you can do uh, in order to get there. So rather than just say, I'm going to look for work, we would sit down and say, on Thursday morning after walking the dog, I'm going to go to Loughton High Street and speak to two retailers about finding work in their store. And actually, just to go back to that point about the nine different signatures, what I found really fascinating was was going out there. You could essentially, you could unpick that bureaucratic entropy and kind of understand why from a system perspective that arose. So it was almost like unpicking the permafrost and going through like, why have nine forms come up? And what I found really fascinating was originally there weren't nine forms. There weren't nine signatures. There were originally, there were just about two forms that people needed to fill in. But there was some sort of regulation change or legislation change, which meant that one of them had to be amended. So when the Job Centre staff came to revise this, these forms, they quickly realised that they had, you know, tens of thousands of them. And it'd be ridiculous just to throw them all out and start afresh. So someone created a cover sheet. And then after that, there was a new amendment, which meant that they had to create a new cover sheet because it wasn't on the same part that had the, the previous cover sheet. And this sort of just built up and up and up and up. And that really highlighted the fact that we needed to simplify everything. But I guess you got a better, almost, you got an empathetic view of the system as opposed to even just the individuals in there. You could tell that story and, and be um, 
a policy archaeologist in many ways. Yeah, and I think that was reinforced again through our observations where you could see the way that the conversations have been set up where not only the people have to fill in these forms, but the providers also had to enter a lot of information into their computers, into their systems. So you had these extremely depersonalized conversations where the provider and the, the job seeker wouldn't look each other in the eye. There was almost a robotic sort of transfer of information and no real human connection. And that the, the word connection was often quite adversarial. So they were sat, you know, opposite sides of the table, probing about whether they'd, they they completed that minimum level of compliance. So we did simple things like actually just trying to turn the screen around so they were looking at the same information and that sense of trying to achieve a common purpose and really simple things like eye contact where the computer is facing the type of way that you open that conversations were really key for changing the nature of that experience and conversation no i mean one of the interesting parts of this was the misperception about how job seekers would behave so there was a deep-seated belief amongst the providers the employment support workers that job seekers couldn't be trusted with their documents and actually all of their experience suggested that they would just throw away any of the paperwork that was given to them but our view was that, that was often because as we discussed the paperwork they were given wasn't any use to them it wasn't they didn't feel a sense of ownership and actually when we create these materials where they wrote down what it is that they wanted to find uh, work and what the specific steps would be in order to find work actually the vast majority of people nearly everyone kept those forms they would remember to bring them in in their next appointment and that really surprised uh, a lot of the job center staff uh, and actually was a good moment i think for us to reflect actually if you empower these job seekers and you give them a sense of ownership of the product and process they're actually much more likely to be you know responsible and to to keep uh, and engage with the the forms and processes that that we set out hmm. and i think one of the key things as well is that when we went to other job centres, we also learned new lessons that we could then, you know, we learned not only what was similar in the different job centres, but then also what was different. And that means that, you know, when we're working in, in new settings, like we're doing a decent amount of work now in New Zealand, uh, we don't only walk in there with our preconceived ideas of what's going on. And we actually have some audio of uh, Sophie Monroe from the Ministry of Social Development in New Zealand talking through uh, some of the insights that they've gleaned from going out and doing that exploratory work. We, we really love going out and spending time with our clients. I mean, it's we find that incredibly valuable. Just being able to sit down and, and actually really have good conversations and really sort of start to understand what's confronting them. We always get something, something that we don't didn't expect to find. We we have historically um, used big data as our main kind of reference point to understanding what our clients might need and how we should be interacting with them, which obviously is really valuable when you're looking at it, a population-based approach. But we all know that the data gives us a perspective and sometimes you end up missing all the really rich kind of detail that happens for for our clients. But when we've actually gone out and, um, you know, complemented the big data with lived experience, we've actually got a very, very different picture. And it, the example which I'm referring to is around looking at access to, um, you know, postnatal care services. And we have, um, like, in the, in the big data, we saw a, a lot of um, some of our Indigenous populations weren't accessing some of the services as they would have with the non-Indigenous populations. And so that was kind of quite troubling from a, from a government and public policy perspective. 
And so if we'd continued with just referencing those findings, we probably would have developed services that would have, in our mind, responded to the fact that these people aren't using the services. They're missing out. There's a whole lot of stuff not happening, sort of, you know, what kind of educational components need to be incorporated within that to be able to, to cater to the clients. However, what we ended up doing was we had this big data and then went out and did a whole lot of interviews with the um, these key audiences and spent quite a lot of time really trying to understand the lived experiences. And what we did find was absolutely striking and surprised everybody where we went out and interviewed the Indigenous clients. And their response was kind of in, in such a way that it was very matter of fact about what, why would I want to go and talk to a service provider about my breastfeeding <laughs> when I've got this massive network of um, aunties and relatives and cousins and siblings that, that I could be talking to and they are my support network. So they didn't need to have in their mind, they weren't using the services because they that need was being met by their immediate family and the family connections. You know, in our in New Zealand, we have our Indigenous population has a very different interpretation in the way that data is used. And, and we need to be able to ensure that we are honouring that from a sovereignty perspective. And so for non-Māori um, researchers may interpret is often quite different than, say, a Māori researcher. So for us, it's it's ensuring that whatever we are doing, we're making sure that we've got the appropriate stakeholders supporting that um, development and interpretation of the information too. Had we just focused the work solely on the big data and the insight that we were drawing from the, from the quantitative data, we actually probably would have set up something for these women is completely it was there was there was no need for it in a, in their in their sense in their world, <laughs> um, and we would have missed the opportunity of really understanding that um, their support networks played a much more critical role in ensuring that they were continuing to support their their young babies than what it would be if they'd had a, a non-family member in kind of giving them advice. Um, I think the other thing which uh, the <clears throat> strong insight that it gave us too was it actually looking at how do you support that family network or that social network in a way that ensures that they're all kind of gaining from the experience. And so, you know, what other kind of services could be developed that's actually utilising those influence figures for those young mums. Generally always will go out and we will test things with clients and they'll generally, it'll come back a much better product. And often we can see things that aren't going to work um, and fix them pretty quickly. So it sort of becomes actually a really great mitigating tool. One other insight that we had actually around our research tools is the different perspectives that you can get particularly when you build up trust and rapport over a period of time. So, you know, when we asked the job centre staff about their perceptions of ways to improve the system or how they would enter into these sorts of discussions, you would get a very different answer um, to what you're actually able to observe in practice. And actually, we often found that sort of nuggets that we would get in terms of, you know, the real insights into what was driving their behaviour or how they might, you know, make improvements was actually often found in the staff room during a sort of cup of tea or a, a biscuit in between their day rather than for, through formal interviews. 
And so quite often we will try to use this combination, a variety of different data sources, use observation, use semi-structured uh, interviews, and often sort of combine that with off-the-cuff interviews where as over time you build up that sort of rapport and relationship, you will often get a much deeper and truer sense of people's perspectives and understanding than you do if you just sort of fly in and ask a load of interviews quickly up front. I think that's a really key insight. I mean, I remember being quite surprised coming into the policymaking world where you'd have a bunch of smart but pretty arrogant 24-year-olds designing policy that would, that would then be implemented across the country or across the state. And we would ask then, you know, in some cases, tens of thousands of people to implement this policy. And the 24-year-old might spend six months designing a, a policy or a service or a program, but then that six months just pales in comparison to the thousands of years of time that's been invested in implementing that policy. And I think we should really be using that knowledge and expertise more as we start trying to uh, think about how we might improve systems. Yeah, we talked earlier about co-design and many of our best ideas uh, in this space came from discussions again with frontline staff and with end users. Uh, and certainly when it came to scale up sort of across the country, actually having those champions of the job centers, you know, from the job centers, those managers, those frontline staff was absolutely key in spreading it effectively through a system rather than from a more top-down perspective. So what I've taken from this podcast is that experience is vital to good policymaking and nothing beats getting out from behind your desk. We know it's never possible to fully understand another human being's experience but that is no reason to give up on building empathy and understanding and making space for the voices of those people affected by your policies when you're designing them. Today, we've largely focused on why policymakers should head out onto the front line. But we know that the how is hard, especially during COVID. We'll be publishing a guide called Explore on how you can use the tools that we've been discussing in this podcast over the next few months. So keep an eye out for that. Thanks for listening, and thank you to our guests and colleagues, Zoe Powell, Saul Wodak, Alison Wong, Edwina Crawford, and Sophie Monroe. And thank you also to Evan at Pixel Life Studio for his editing. Stay safe. <laughs>